Welcome. Uh, who's excited looking at the weather app for this week and saw 50 degree temperatures? Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. I mean, literally last weekend, our air happened to go out and Michelle and Caroline and I were like sweating it out all night and we surely were not burning the pumpkin spice candle. We were burning like summer breeze candles still because it was just like, oh my word. But anyway, public service announcement. It is time to put out your fall decorations, okay? Finally time, you know? We haven't felt like it until now, but yesterday, ours came out of the attic. Anybody else with me? Did y'all put yours up in the 90-degree weather just to will it to be fall? Anyway, it is time. It is time. And so, it's a good feeling. I was thinking this week, uh, if you've got your Bibles, I hope you get them open to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be today, and I was thinking how cool it is, uh, I became aware this week that um, this particular week is uh, my sixth anniversary of being called to be pastor here at our church, and we're teaching, I'm teaching in chapter six of John, and it just made me really thankful again, uh, as I have dates like that marked in my calendar, uh, there are certain things that I really believe we all need to set up as like marker moments, just things that we need to never forget, uh, reasons of God's faithfulness and goodness, signs of His grace in our life. And I'm just continually grateful uh, for the opportunity, the, the joy, the privilege of uh, shepherding our, our family, our body here at ICC, and just uh, so eager uh, for the season that we have ahead. And it makes me so thankful uh, just to know uh, that how all of this began was just God's faithfulness, and how all of this will continue is, again, God's grace and faithfulness. So just want you to know today how much I love and appreciate you, our body. Uh, John chapter 6 this morning, as we continue in our series of John, uh, John writes with a clear purpose. He tells us in chapter 20, he writes these things that we might know that Jesus is, y'all should know this by now, what? The Christ. And believe in him. And by believing in him, that you and I might have life in his name. So everything that we're studying as we go through the Gospel of John together is aimed at this clear purpose. That we might know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that we might, by knowing, choose to put our faith in him, respond to him by yielding ourselves to him, trusting him, hoping in him. And as we do that, experiencing life, the restoration of life, and the fullness of life that only Jesus brings. This morning, we're in chapter 6, and our theme is Jesus, our sustenance. And I could not be more excited about teaching John 6 this morning, but we have a lot to do and not enough time to do it. And so I'm going to go ahead and just dive in. Chapter 6 is 71 verses. Hope you guys don't have dinner plans because we will be together. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 today, and I just figured, you know, we pass out food and just stay a while. But no, um, 71 verses. So it's, it's an awesome chapter. There's a lot to cover. Uh, in case you're wondering, yes, I can barely read 71 verses in the 45 minutes that I usually teach. And so uh, you're wondering, what is it going to be like? And that's what I'm wondering too. So we will see. It's just playing. Don't worry. Um, but Jesus, our sustenance. I want to go ahead and give you our main point. It is a whopper this morning, but I couldn't make it smaller. I really just felt like I couldn't in order to be faithful. So here it goes. I want to give you some time to write it. Jesus is our true sustenance. Jesus is our true sustenance. I encourage everybody to write this morning, whether you put something in your phone or write it on a piece of paper around you, or if you have one of our study guides or our app, I really encourage you to write this morning. There's too much for you to possibly remember by just trying to think about it and remember it later. You need to really write down so you can process and come back to it later. Jesus is our true sustenance. It continues. Even though we may be tempted to find fulfillment elsewhere, and we may struggle to release full control, we are committed to believe and follow Jesus alone because he is the only one who can rescue 
and satisfy our hearts forever. I should get an amen. <laughs> this is so, so true. We're going to see it unpacked in this passage, but let me read it again as you continue to write. Jesus is our true sustenance. Even though we may be tempted to find fulfillment elsewhere, and we may struggle to release full control, we are committed to believe and follow Jesus alone because he is the only one who can rescue and satisfy our hearts forever. If you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 6, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then I'm going to make eight observations for us this morning, and we're going to use that to frame our time in the Word together. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We know that Jesus has just shown that He is our authority. That's where the context is, where we picked up from chapter 5. He's been speaking to the religious leaders. He's been ministering among the crowds. He's been healing. More and more people are coming to realize who he is, that he's not just an ordinary person or ordinary prophet, that he is the Christ. But many leaders are struggling because they don't want to release control to him. They want to maintain their own authority. They don't want to submit to his authority. This is the context by which we ended chapter 5 and are now moving into chapter 6. And he says this. After Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of these to get a of them to get a little. Well, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Hey, there's a boy here. He has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and they filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now on the next day, the crowd that had remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and they went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe you? What work do you perform? For our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and he who gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God has seen, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then, they disputed among themselves saying, how can this Man, give us his flesh to eat. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me 
he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how your word is spirit and life. And I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would give life to us as we listen to you speak through your living word. Father, we know that you call our hearts to be open and receptive, not hard, but open to you, Father, to be willing to listen, and not just to listen, but receive, and not just receive, but to do that which you speak to us. So, Father, we ask by your Holy Spirit and your grace, that your love would pour down on us in such a way that we could hear your words today, we could believe, and we can have life by believing in your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got something to write with, I'd like to make eight observations from John chapter 6 this morning. Yes, I said eight, and they are a glorious eight. I could not get it any shorter, and I promise I will try to respect your time. Don't you worry. But listen, this is an awesome and all-important passage for us to study together today. Observation number one, what I'm going to do is survey the whole text of Scripture. I am trusting that you spend time in the Word every day in the John 6, right? You guys are going to do that this week, follow our reading plan, and hopefully get engaged in a small group this week where you can study more. I'm looking as a 30,000-foot view of surveying the whole passage and asking the Lord, is what I've been doing as I've been preparing. God, what are you saying to us? What are the things that you want us to see about who you are and what you call us to from this passage? Observation number one is this. Jesus is the promised one who has come to perform God's great rescue. There are some wonderful things that happen in this passage. It kind of centers around, you know, this story that many of us are familiar with. And if this is the first time you've heard it, you can just again marvel at the grace and the power of Jesus, how he feeds uh, the hungry and uh, how uh, he satisfies them in, in their time of need. And there's a lot of conversation and kind of uh, events that follow. That's kind of the just the events, the happenings of this chapter, but I want you to remember John's purpose in writing all of this, and you've got to ask, how is John in this showing us these events in chapter 6, pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, how he's pointing us to believe in him and to have life in his name? Listen, there is a a big overarching theme in chapter 6. Sometimes we struggle to get these themes because we don't have some of the, the Judaic kind of Old Testament background. Some of us are, are learning that more and more. But you've got to remember that the people of God, 
are lost without God's rescue. You, you know that, right? We as God's people, the people of Israel and all of humanity, are lost without one who would ultimately come to provide the great rescue for the people of God. All of Israel was uh, told to remember God's faithfulness and remember God's promise by looking back to some key historical events in their own history. One of those events was the Passover, the Exodus, right? Y'all probably remember this, the time that the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel was living under bondage and slavery. They were calling out to God for rescue, and by great miraculous power and by his great compassion and grace, he provided a rescue for them uh, through the leadership of Moses, but mainly by his own power and delivering them out of the mighty hand of the power of Egypt parting the sea, allowing them to walk on dry ground, and then allowing them to move toward the land that he had promised them. Every year, the Jewish people would celebrate this at what they call Passover. Y'all familiar with this? And we've got to think about what John is saying here. Look at the scripture. He says, verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Do you think Jesus is just picking some random time to go about uh, showing how he works with the same compassion and the same power of God to meet the needs of people who are desperate for rescue? Listen, the people knew every Passover, what the Jewish people would do is they would anticipate, they would pray for the one who was to come, who would provide an eternal rescue for the salvation of their souls, not just a rescue of their bodies out of Egypt, but that was to be a pointer, a sign for them of something that was coming that was even greater, an eternal rescue that would come by one, the promised Messiah, who would rescue their souls back to God. This was the time that Jesus showed up. He showed up, and I really believe in showing up at the time of the Passover. He is showing up to help them see That he is the one who is there to provide that great rescue. Another sign that they looked to at the Passover that we always remember was from the passage in Numbers chapter 11, the time that the, the Israelites were journeying through the wilderness and they came to a time where they were starving. They were hungry. They were in a place where they had no water and they had no food and they were grumbling as always going, God, how? you know, even though they, they, he just parted the stinking ocean for them and let them walk through, they're like, oh, I'm never going to get another meal in my life. This is terrible. And Moses goes and intercedes for them. And what does God do? He provides in a miraculous way, does he not? You remember the story? Numbers 11, if you haven't read it, you can go back and look at it. He provides in a miraculous way by providing food for them, feeding them by his direct hand. Now, it happened through Moses, but the point was to remember that it was God who was providing for his people. And Moses himself knew that this was all just to point to a greater provision that was to come. For Moses himself, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, he says that God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to him all that I command him. Just like Jesus said in John chapter 5, if you believe the words of Moses, then you would believe in me because Moses knew that he wasn't the greatest leader, that there was one coming who would be even greater, who would be the one to perform the ultimate rescue of the souls of man. Now, Jesus shows up at the time of remembering and praying for the one who was to come, and he shows up feeding them in a miraculous way. What do you think he's doing? Do you think there could be some significance to all of this? The answer is yes, right? Because he's saying, I am the one who is going to perform this rescue. I'm showing up with great compassion and power at the right time to answer your prayers. I will provide eternal rescue. Let me show you by this sign, similar to the sign that Moses gave in the wilderness of God's provision. I am now here, the prophet who is greater than he, to perform an amazing and miraculous provision that you might believe that I am the Christ. I am he who has come to rescue you. Isn't that amazing? And not only this, but right after the feeding of the 5,000, you have him walking on water. What is that about? Is this just like a cool thing that Jesus likes doing sometimes? 
Why didn't he get in the boat? He knew what he was doing, guys, right? He knows what he's doing. What is this about, and why is this kind of interjected? I mean, there's no explanation. It's just like, this just happens. Okay, cool. Like, we're supposed to be like, that's cool. Like, it's happening because in Isaiah chapter 11, the Word of God tells us in verse 15, that there is one coming who will lead people across water in sandals. Hello! This is one of the signs of the Messiah. How will they know when the Christ appears, the one who will perform the great and everlasting rescue for all who trust in him? He will lead people across water in sandals. Anybody else going, that's cool? (laughs) That's awesome, right? Jesus. Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And you should believe in Him. And you should, by believing in Him, experience life in His name. Let's go back to uh, point number one, observation number one. And that is this. Jesus is the promised one who has come to perform God's great rescue. He is the Christ. Observation number two is this. Jesus is our true satisfaction and sustenance, not bread. Jesus is our true satisfaction and sustenance, not bread. Jesus did not come into the world to give us bread, but to be our bread. Jesus did not come into the world to give us bread, but to be our bread. If you go back to the passage, verse 45. Forty-eight, fifty-one. Let's look at these. Jesus said to them, 35, excuse me. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 48. I believe it is. I am the bread of life. He repeats it again. I am the bread of life. The people, the people keep going, now what? What's this bread you're going to give us? Oh, yeah, give us some of that bread. And he goes, "Mm, okay, guys, let me say it again. I am the bread. Okay? It's not giving you wonder loaf. Not asking you to go to the buffet and choose your favorite muffin. I am saying, I am the bread of life. He continues in 50, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Yes, we should marvel at the miracle, one of the signs that he is the Christ, how Jesus can take, if you, listen, how cool is this, that you can if you just bring everything to him, that's, what, that's all he asks. Just bring whatever is available to him. Bring it all to him and look how he breaks it and blesses it and he multiplies it. What a beautiful story and picture for us in our life that if we bring what we have to him, he will bless and he will multiply beyond that which we can ever do. We know that story from the feeding of the 5,000, but there is something more than the people need than that bread that he passed out that day. And he multiplies in abundance, does he not? (laughs) But there's something more going on than just those people having their bellies for that one day satisfied. Because Jesus knows that that material food is entirely insufficient to meet the Jewish people's real need, and it's entirely insufficient to meet our need. Friends, we need something much more than physical bread. We need spiritual life. And I really believe that one of the reasons that God created bread, oh my gosh, my mom said, man, Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but I can sure die trying. That's what my mom used to say. We used to pick restaurants by the bread that is there. Does anybody else do that? I mean, I love Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuits. Did I just make you hungry? 
I love those garlicky, buttery rolls from Olive Garden. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Those breadsticks? Oh, man. What's your favorite bread? I don't even need to know. But here's the thing. There's something about us that just loves bread. Every country I've ever traveled to, they love their particular form of bread. Why did God create bread to be so wonderful? Why? Why from the foundation of the world did he go, I will create bread and it will be magnificently glorious and very fattening? Here's the thing. He created bread. The whole reason that he lets the garlic rolls at Olive Garden and the cheese rolls at Red Lobster be so delicious is so that he could stand before us and say, you don't need that bread as much as you need me. If you could get how much you love that bread and how satisfied you feel when you eat that bread, oh, you should just taste and see that I am good. For you should taste the goodness of who I am. And you should see by what I've created for you to understand in your body, you should understand something about your soul. That your soul is so much more important than your body. And the bread of my life is so much more important than the bread that you put in your belly. Come to me and eat and be satisfied. I am the bread. Every time we taste of the goodness of warm bread, it should send our soul soaring to the goodness of Christ as our bread of life. He is far, far greater. Now, I will say this. Jesus is our true satisfaction and sustenance, not bread. He came into the world to give you bread, but not to be your bread. He came to satisfy your heart in him. Not to enable your heart to be satisfied in something else by him. This is where the prosperity gospel gets it all wrong. Any other gospel gets it completely wrong if the gospel doesn't lead you to Jesus as our greatest treasure and gift. It makes me sick that sometimes we use Jesus thinking we come to Jesus in order to get something else from Jesus. But no, Jesus enables us to come to Jesus so that we can get Jesus because he is the best. He is the greatest gift. He is the highest satisfaction. We don't call out to Jesus so we can get more money or we can get more health or we can get anything else in terms of this world because our hearts are not made for this world. We come to Jesus so that we can get Jesus because he is the true bread of life, the only one who can give our hearts and souls sustenance and satisfaction. We are an unsatisfied people. Our hearts long constantly. Everything you do is driven by your need to be happy, your need to be fulfilled, your need to find purpose, your need to find identity, satisfaction. But listen, your hearts crave all of that because your hearts crave Jesus. He didn't come to make it easier for you to get whatever else you wanted before you came to Jesus. That's not conversion. Conversion is when your old desires die, and he replaces your old desires for other things with a new desire, namely the desire for he himself. He is our satisfaction, and he is our sustenance. He doesn't enable us to continue just living a better life that we were living before him. No, he creates new life in us, and that new life is marked by a hunger, a thirst, a satisfaction, and a fulfillment in him and him alone. Amen? I get kind of excited about this. John Piper says this, Jesus did not come to be useful, but to be precious. Jesus did not come to be useful, but to be precious. And oh, how many Christians receive him as useful. He says, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in meeting desires you already had before you were born again. Jesus came into the world to change your desires so that he is the main one. Jesus did not come to be useful, but to be precious. Let's go back to our main point, the second point. Jesus himself is our true satisfaction and sustenance, not bread. Jesus did not come into the world to give us bread but to be our bread. Now you substitute 
That word, bread, for that which you will. But listen, it's talking about your fulfillment. Jesus came to fulfill your heart. Observation number three. Jesus calls us to follow him for who he really is. He gets to define who he is, and he gets to define what he is truly about, not us. Observation three. Jesus calls us to follow him for who he really is. He gets to define who he truly is, and he gets to define who he's truly about, not not us. It's interesting, Jesus comes, and throughout this passage, we see Jesus trying to show the people who he is. He's just speaking plainly. Here's who I am. Here's what I've come to do. Here's the work that I've, I've, I've been called to do. This is the Father's work. This is the Father's gift, the true bread from heaven. This is the Father's will that you would believe in him. This is what the Father requires, not that you do anything, but that you give yourself to the Son of Man who provides us food that you might have eternal life. All of this, Jesus lays out very plainly. But it's interesting, just like there's so many parallels between John 6 and Numbers 11, it's not even funny, but just like in the Old Testament, the people grumble, the people complain. See, this moment is a test for the people. And what ends up happening as Jesus exposes who he is and how he saves, what it means to really follow him is it's a test, and their motives are going to be revealed. It's going to be laid bare what they really want from Jesus. I mean, just look at how the, the crowds respond. Let's go back to John 6, verse 15. They say, Yo, this is indeed the prophet who's coming to the world. Okay, they got that part right. Give him credit. He's a prophet. He's the greater prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 18. But then look, Jesus perceives then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him what? King. So Jesus leaves him. You're going to try to make Jesus something that he's not. He'll leave you. He's not going to have you follow him trying to make him something that he's not. You need to know who he is, and you need to follow him for who he is. You get to determine what he's here to do from the very beginning. Jesus came, the Son of Man came to give his life, Mark 10. Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jewish people couldn't handle this. They were looking for somebody to put in power. They thought the Messianic king would be one who delivered them from all of their earthly troubles. They weren't as concerned about their souls as they were their bodies. We see that throughout the whole passage. They wanted to put him as king to triumph the Roman oppression, to deliver the goodness of the glory days of Israel back. And that's not what Jesus was there to do. He was there to die. And they couldn't get in their noggins following a suffering servant, following one who would require everything, even life itself. And because they, didn't, they weren't willing to recognize who he really is and what he really came to do, he, he left. We also see in verse 26 and 27, Jesus answered them, Truly, I truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because your bellies are full. Wait, that's a message version. But because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What is he saying? I know your motive. Your motive is not to follow me because I am the Christ. Your motive is to follow me because I just gave you food and you're hungry. Your motive is to have me make your life a little better here. But your motive is not to surrender your all to me as the Christ, the Son of God. He continues, and there's another verse that shows us this in verse 30 and 31. So they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What are they wanting? A song and a dance. They're wanting an answer to their present need. Listen. Jesus calls us to follow him for who he truly is. He gets to define who he truly is and what he's about, not us. And the people's motives were on full display here. The crowds were seeking a miracle, not a person. And I want to know in your life, how often is it that we struggle with this or ministries or churches struggle with this where the motive is not the person, 
but the motive is the miracle. Where we're going to Jesus, not for Jesus, but for something else that we think Jesus can offer us. And Jesus wouldn't have that. Jesus looks beyond what their words are, and he looks into their heart, and he looks into our heart, and he asks, what is our motive? It seems to be sometimes in our world today that we can be sometimes more excited by having our present material needs met rather than by the great spiritual rescue that Jesus came to meet. In the social gospels of today, the prosperity gospels of today, the political gospels of today, sometimes people, they don't want, they don't really want what Jesus is doing. (laughs) They don't want his sort of rescue because they want to maintain control. They want... I want sometimes for Jesus to be who I want him to be, to fit my agenda, to fit my thoughts. But friends, we don't, when we go to Jesus, we don't decide who Jesus is and we don't get to decide what he's about. He calls us to know who he is and to yield ourselves to him. Jesus wants us to follow him for, for, for who he truly is. You can have great enthusiasm for Jesus all you want to, but if you are enthusiastic about someone who is not really Jesus, then you don't honor Jesus. You need to make sure, and I need to make sure, that in our lives and in our spiritual journeys that we are following Jesus. Not Jesus who we want Jesus to be, but Jesus who he really is. Not Jesus who fits our little Western world materialistic agendas, but rather Jesus who is the king of the universe and commands us to listen and to follow him. Our lives would be more radically aligned, I believe, to the kingdom of God if we followed Jesus for who he truly is and not who we want him to be. Make that your life pursuit. Jesus, help me follow you for who you truly are. Number four, I gotta go. Four, Jesus provides satisfaction and sustenance to our hearts by his broken body and shed blood. His work on the cross for us. Jesus provides, now we've said before, he is our only fulfillment. He provides satisfaction and sustenance for our hearts. Now the question is, how does Jesus do that? And in John 6, Jesus shows us he provides the satisfaction and sustenance for our hearts. by his broken body and his shed blood, namely, by his work on the cross. If you go back to the scripture, verse 51, Jesus says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He continues, In verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, this was impossible for the Jewish people to try to get and to understand. They're going, excuse me, Leviticus tells us that we should not drink blood. And Jesus is like, you know what? Like, unless the Spirit gives you life, you're not going to get this. But if the Spirit could give you understanding, you would understand that Jesus is not saying that he wants you to actually cut his body up and eat his actual flesh and drink of the actual blood that was in his body as he died. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what he's saying is this, that the way that your soul is going to be rescued, the only way for you to find sustenance and satisfaction in your heart is for me to give my life for you. 
I am the bread of life. I am the true bread who's come down from heaven, but I'm here with a clear purpose. Remember in John 3, the Son of Man must be lifted up to draw all men to himself. What is his purpose in coming? He's come that he might lay down his life as a ransom for many. John saw him, John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What is he saying here at the Passover festival? He's saying, I am the Lamb, the true Lamb. For all of time, from the beginning of the Passover, these lambs, were their blood was shed. Their actual blood was shed, and their blood was applied over the door of, of, of the, the home so that as God's judgment came through, they might not be condemned, but they might find mercy. Mercy has always come to God's people by the blood. By the shedding, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's always been the blood, but those lambs can't actually take away sin. All of those lambs, the thousands and thousands and thousands of them, had been purposed to point the way to the true Lamb of God that John saw and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who is Jesus. And it is Jesus Christ, friends, who shed his own life and his own blood. He was crucified, not because he deserved anything wrong, but because you and I did. The only way for our souls to be rescued, our sins to be forgiven, and new life to be imparted to our spirit is for him to die in our place. And truly, his flesh was ripped and his blood was shed. And as God himself took our place, bearing the punishment for our sins, he can say, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. For I have paid it in full. So yes, the bread that I offer is my flesh. And it is my blood. In other words, it is what I have done for you. It's nothing of what... Listen, you're going to find satisfaction and sustenance for your soul. It is not going to come by anything that you do. I don't care how many promotions at work you get, how many degrees and titles behind your name, how many toys and trinkets you buy at the store, how big your family is, who you marry. It is never going to deeply satisfy your heart. The only one who can satisfy your heart is Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for you. my blood, my flesh, Jesus says. This is what I'm talking about. And if you'd come to receive what I have done for you, your hearts can be happy and full. Number five, we are invited to feast our hearts on Jesus by hearing his words and believing in him. We are invited to feast our hearts on Jesus by believing his words and hearing his words, excuse me, and believing in him. We must feed on Jesus. I'm going to take you to a few verses, and I'm not going to elaborate on these very much, but I just want to show you where this is coming from. Jesus says, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Some of you might go, okay, Jesus is the true bread. What does it mean to eat the bread? I mean, I get going to Red Lobster and Olive Garden, but how do I eat Jesus? How do I have this? Jesus' answers, he says, listen, you want to know how to have this? Believe in me. This is the work of God. The Jewish people are going, what works do we do? Completely thinking it's about them doing something for God. It is not our relationship with God is not based on what we do for God, praise Jesus. It's all based on what he has done for us and our connecting with that by our faith and trust in him. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 36, 35, 36. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever, y'all say it with me now, believes in me shall never thirst. I said to you, you've seen me, yet you do not believe. Again, he's inner twining, eating, and believing. These are the synonymous things, all right? He goes on and says this in verses 39 and 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and what? Believes in Him should have eternal life. He goes on in verse 47, says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then in verse 63, 
He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. We are invited to feast our hearts on Jesus. And I use this word because it's the word that Jesus uses for us. I'm telling you better than the all-you-can-eat buffet at Ryan's, and there's a lot of things better than that. <laughs> better than any food you've ever tasted in your life, even the best of the best of the best of what can be offered to you in the world. Listen, Jesus offers infinitely more, and he says, come, without money, without price, come and feast upon me. How do you do this? You do this by hearing his words and hearing his promise and choosing to put your trust in him. And he will fill you and satisfy you. Observation number six is this. Many people, quote-unquote, follow Jesus with the wrong motives and will eventually walk away when their desires are not met or things get tough. I see this plain and clear from this chapter. It's just laid bare for us to see. Many, many people, Jesus in other places describes it, path is wide to destruction, but narrow to life. Many people hear the word. They receive it like seeds, and other things come and choke it out. It's very few who hear it, and it's planted deep, and it bears fruit for eternal life. Here, we see it on full display. Many people, quote-unquote, follow Jesus, but in reality, their motives are wrong. And when their desires are not met, or when things get tough, they will walk away. We see it here in the scripture, John chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We saw this earlier. He continues in verse 26. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then, as we get toward the end of the chapter, we see, sadly, now these people have been following Jesus up to this point, and they get to this message, and they hear who Jesus really is and what he's really about, and they go, look at it. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then... Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What are we to make of this? Here's what I'll make of this. It goes back to the question of what's really going on in our heart. Are you one who follows Jesus for Jesus, or are you one who follows Jesus for what you think you can get out of Jesus? And yes, all of us get something out of Jesus. It's a great rescue of our souls. But the reality is, many of these people, many of these people, when they found out that Jesus was not the genie in the bottle, the one who was just going to change all their present circumstances, meet all of their present material needs, was going to give them X, Y, and Z, or maybe this, when they found out the true cost of following Jesus, namely that he comes first and he asks us to yield ourselves to him completely, take up our cross and follow him, that if, you know, the world is going to hate him, they might hate us too. When they some of us, when we hear the hard sayings of Jesus and hear the path that Jesus wants us to follow, when we're confronted with obedience and there comes a choice between maintaining our life of sin or walking with God, at the end of the day, what happens in our hearts is we want the sin more than we want Jesus and we walk away. When it comes to letting go of our control, saying yes to that which Jesus is convicting us of, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in our lives that maybe we want to decide whether I do this or this. What right does Jesus have? But Jesus comes in and says, I have every right for those who follow me. You yield all of your rights to me. You don't get to decide. I get to decide. You trust and follow me. And when we hear that, we go, ah, don't know. Many people, many people follow, quote unquote, Jesus with the wrong motive and will eventually walk away when their desires are not met 
or when things get tough. Oh, I pray that you're not one of those people because number seven, observation seven is this. True disciples, true disciples are committed to believe and follow Jesus alone because he is the only one who can truly rescue and satisfy our hearts forever. This is the difference in the crowd and the true disciples. And let me tell you, friends, it is hard. I was talking to somebody last night about growing our church. Listen, we could grow a crowd in a heartbeat here at ICC. We do the right things, do the right, you know, look and feel and make it easy. I could teach about 30 minutes instead of 50 minutes. Some of y'all would love that too. Don't say amen because I'm just equating you to the crowd, okay? I'm just playing. It has nothing to do with sermon length. But there are things that we could do to get crowds, but Jesus is not interested in crowds. Jesus is interested in disciples. Do you know that? Jesus doesn't look at the size of the crowd. He looks into the heart to see who is truly with me. And I'm telling you, I don't want a church that's filled with crowd-type people. I want a church of people who are with Jesus. We got to see the opportunity and invitation because in the midst of this passage, if you go back to the main point real quick, we see, is it possible to go back to, there you go. True disciples are committed to believe and follow Jesus alone. This is part of your main point now. Because he is the only one who can truly rescue and satisfy our hearts forever. Let's go back to the scripture now. John 6. As soon as all of the, a lot of disciples, not all of them, turned back and no longer walked with him. Man, you know, in today's world, we'd look at Jesus' ministry and go, man, he's a complete failure. That's the worst way to start a church ever. You know, he lost all the people. <laughs> and he goes, no, this is, what, this is the best church. Because now I got the people that are willing, you know, willing to work with me here. You see what I'm saying? It's just funny. And after this, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? But Simon Peter answered him. And Jesus asked us that question. How serious are you about following me? What about you? I know your heart. I, I'm asking you in light of who I am and you knowing what it means to follow me, knowing that I get to decide who I am and the agenda, and I'm asking you to come along with me, do you, do you still want to follow? He asks that question of us, doesn't he? He asks us to seriously consider our commitment to believe and follow him. And Peter, Peter speaks up, and he gives a voice to the group who remain, and he says, Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed in you and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Jesus, I don't want to go anywhere. I mean, yes, like, it's hard sometimes. I face temptation to find pleasure somewhere else. It's hard to give up my control. Listen, you got to admit the things that are difficult, right? Does anybody else face temptation time to time to turn away from Jesus to something else? Anybody in the room willing to admit that? Let me see your hands, right? Yes. Anybody find it difficult to surrender your full control to Jesus sometimes? Yes. We count the cost. We're not foolish to count the cost. There is cost. There is temptation. There is struggle. But at the end of the day, where else will we go, friends? We're going to believe that sin doesn't matter. We're going to believe that you can have your sin and Jesus too. You don't believe that God doesn't really exist. It's not that big of a deal. At the end of the day, we'll just all be fine. I mean, you could go elsewhere, but in your heart of hearts, you know there's nowhere else to go because there's only one who gives life, and his name is Jesus. He is the bread come down from heaven. He is the one who your heart needs. He's the only one who can provide the rescue by what he has done in his work for you on the cross. He is the one to whom your loyalty and honor is due. Where else will you go? You can go somewhere else for a time, but it's not going to give you what you want, and especially not going to give you what you need forever, evermore. Where else will you go? And Peter says, no, Jesus, we're not leaving you. I mean, I feel this is hard too. I don't really get what you're saying, but it's okay. I mean, sometimes like, it's just like I don't get what you're saying, Jesus, or how am I going to do this? But at the end of the day, I'm not leaving you. 
because I know that you're the Holy One. I know the one, you're the one that gives life. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I found life in your name. Praise Jesus. This is the nature of a true disciple. The motive displayed and the motive is pure. Number eight, and we'll be done. We'll be done. I promise we'll be done. Number eight. Some of y'all are going to Red Lobster and Olive Garden after this. I just know it. I just know it. Please invite me because I would love to go. Number eight is this. Trusting and following Jesus in this way, in the path of true discipleship, trusting and following Jesus is only possible through God's amazing grace and his supernatural work in your heart. You've heard the choices. You're going to be part of the crowd or you're going to be part of the true disciples. You're going to be part of the ones who just want their fill or you're going to be part of the ones who want Jesus. If you want to be one who is a true disciple, let me tell you how true disciples are made. True disciples are made like this. By experiencing this amazing grace of God and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's how true disciples are made. Now let me go to the text and show you this. Jesus answered, don't grumble among yourselves. Shut up. Stop. Listen. You don't get it. You don't get it. Don't don't be confused about this. But then he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. He says a little bit later, that's verse 43. He says in verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, comes to me. He goes on. He says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Wow. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Oh, Jesus, I hope this is your heart this morning. As we move toward closing, I, I just pray that your heart this morning is, oh, Jesus, I, I want to, to be a true disciple. Anybody there this morning? We're just like, Lord, I, I want to know that you're the Christ, really know who you are and what you're about. I really want to be a true disciple. I want to be one who is committed to follow you, even though it's tough and I struggle and I'm tempted and I struggle to yield myself in full control. I'm committed to follow you because there's nowhere else that I can find life. Are you there this morning? Jesus, I want to be a true disciple. If you are, let me tell you how true disciples are made. True disciples are made by the supernatural work of God and a human heart. He works in such an amazing and gracious way for those who posture themselves and yearn for him. The Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. For those who posture themselves in a position of total humility and dependence upon God, knowing that even the work of faith, true faith, Even the work of your following Jesus, true discipleship, cannot be produced by your own strength. It must come from power that is outside of you. It must come by the work of God in your heart. If you want to experience this level of intimacy with Jesus and the fulfillment of his promise for all who come to him and eat of his flesh and blood and receive his life, he says, you know, I will raise you up on the last day. But if you want to be a part of this and experience the greatest life that man has ever known, the life that God created you to live from the beginning, then you will yield yourself to God in total humility and dependence. And right now say, God, oh God, my flesh is of no help. I need you, God. It is the Spirit, it is your Spirit who gives life. I need you to do a supernatural work in my heart. 
It's based on your amazing grace for me by what you have done. God, I don't deserve this, but I need this, God, because I feel my tendency to walk away. I feel tempted. I feel like I want to maintain control, but God, I need you to give me a superior delight and satisfaction in Jesus that outstrips any temptation that I face because I know that, Jesus, you, you are my treasure, my great reward. And at the end of the day, where else will I go? Jesus, I want you. I need you. I eat you by believing you, hearing your promise, and putting all of my trust in you. I'm committed to you, Jesus. Just pray this morning, God, God, would you make me a true disciple? Where else can I go? There's prayer counselors. There are prayer counselors in the back. I'm here at the front. This is our time to respond to Jesus. Just yield your heart to him. Confess that he is the Christ. Yield your heart to him. Cry out for the work of the Holy Spirit. Put all your trust in his grace and what he's done for you on the cross. He is wonderful. He's all that you need. He will satisfy you and give you sustenance that you always be fulfilled. Come to him.